Hello, everyone. I'm Heather Ward, the SCA's Director of Content Strategy, and you're listening to the SCA Lectures Podcast. Today's episode is part of our World of Coffee Lecture Series, dedicated to showcasing a curated selection of the extensive live lectures offered at the event every year. Since you're with us today, I'm guessing you're into podcasts. Do you know about Recap? It's our new podcast offering a brief overview of recent coffee developments in less than five minutes. You can subscribe by following the link in today's show notes. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the 2019 World of Coffee in Berlin. Don't miss this year's lecture series that takes place in Warsaw in June. Visit worldofcoffee.org for more information. If you'd like to follow along, you can find the slides for this lecture linked in the show notes below. Okay, let's get started. We're going to jump right in. Okay, hello everybody. My name is Peter Giuliano. I am the Chief Research Officer for the Specialty Coffee Association. So it's my duty and my pleasure to give you a little talk about some of the research that we have ongoing as part of the SCA Research Center. So for those of you that are involved as members of the Specialty Coffee Association, this is your research that we're doing on your behalf and we do it on on behalf of the coffee community. So my goal, I've called this talk Cutting Edge Coffee Science. And what I wanted to focus on in the next hour is talking about things that are new or innovative, especially, because I know that that's what interests most people, what interests me. So I'm going to be talking about um, three or four separate research projects, and I'm going to go pretty quickly. I won't be going into too much depth. First, just a little background about myself. I am a coffee person, like many of you. I, I came from the coffee trade, beginning my career as a barista 31 years ago. I say that as a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm going to be talking a lot about work that is not mine. I get to represent it, and it's work that the Specialty Coffee Association is supporting. But my job is to understand and interpret the work of other people, especially the scientific part and academic partners that we work with. So I'll be presenting a lot of other people's work today, and I just want to be clear about that. I'll, I'll, you'll notice that I'll be um, trying to give credit as much as I can to others. Because of that, also, sometimes some of the more technical questions I may not be able to answer, I may defer those to the actual researchers. So anyway, let me begin by just touching on one of the projects that we started more than a year ago. It was actually started quite a few years ago, but we published last year some research about it. And it was meant to answer um, this question, how we understand and quantify coffee freshness. And this was a question that was asked a number of years ago by uh, people from the the specialty coffee community because uh, freshness is such an important concept in specialty coffee. And that research, that the research into investigating this question was led by a person who you, some of you may have seen speaking just a few minutes ago, he's here in the audience, Professor Shahan Yuretzian and his team at the Zurich University for Applied Sciences. their uh, Coffee Excellence Center, and they did some work in understanding coffee freshness. And in the process of doing that, they innovated a pretty cool thing. This is a publication, it's called a methods paper, and it details a methodology that they developed in doing this research, which enabled them to quantify the loss of carbon dioxide as coffee loses its freshness over time. In other words, 
As we all know, coffee builds up carbon dioxide within it during the roasting process, and as soon as that's done, it starts to lose it. And that's actually very difficult to quantify, and this team at, at, at Zurich was able to develop a, a sophisticated methodology where they actually weighed the coffee using very precise mass balance to be able to sort of quantify the, the carbon dioxide as it leaves it, which is challenging, right? Because carbon dioxide is such a small molecule, it's so light, it can be difficult to measure. But they were able to develop a, me a method to do that and led to their ability to develop these, these uh, charts. So these charts are actually detailing, I'm not sure if you can see it on the screen, you can see that this is the cumulative amount of uh, carbon dioxide that's leaving in the hours after, after the coffee is roasted and is holding. And so that gives us for the, a really interesting glimpse into how coffee actually loses its gases. Different rates of uh, carbon dioxide loss depending on how darkly or lightly the coffee is roasted. And then there's also differences in types of coffee, etc. And that's all detailed in this coffee freshness handbook. Okay, so moving on from the, the freshness work, I want to talk to you about another kind of uh, set of research projects that we've undertaken in the past couple of years. And that is taking a look on this tool. So this is probably familiar to many of you. It's called the Brewing Control Chart. This version of it was first published in the 1960s after the work of uh, uh, Dr. E.E. E. Lockhart, who first had the insight about measuring two specific variables in, in coffee, the extraction percentage, which is, you know, how much how much uh, material gets extracted from the coffee when you're, when you're brewing coffee, and the solubles concentration or strength of coffee. So how many people understand and use this chart regularly? Okay, a few of you. Okay, so this is often used by people who are brewing coffee to understand. And we're all from, those of us that work with this are familiar with this box. This is considered to be the ideal or optimal balance box. This is often used as a target for people who are brewing coffee, right? So they, they have their recipe here that they're following, and then they can measure the total dissolved solids of coffee. That gives you a, an idea of what your percentage of extraction is, and your goal is to get in here. But if you look outside of the central box, you see other words too. Things like strong and bitter, weak and underdeveloped. These are descriptive terms, right, that say something about what happens to the coffee flavor when you're outside of that central box. And now these are these words that are, are a little bit vague, right? What does strong or weak mean? What does underdeveloped mean? And so we decided that we wanted to reevaluate this tool that was really, you know, over 50 years old now, and also zero in on some of these, these descriptors a little bit, maybe update them using some of the tools of modern sensory science. So to do this, we turned to the team at the UC Davis Coffee Center, who undertook a uh, project to explore all of this kind of extraction science. And we got some funding support from Breville, the manufacturer of brewers, very generously underwrote this project. And so we were able to do some, for the last two years, we've been doing various 
investigations aimed at understanding the dynamics of that brain control chart. And I'm going to share a little bit of that with you. Here's a picture of some of the laboratory area. You can see the brewers here that we've got set up. We've had a number of different brewers use, using different things. And then here's some sieve shakers that are helping us uh, understand those dynamics. But very importantly, for this work, we're using sensory isolation booths. We're doing both descriptive and consumer work, and I'll talk more about that later, but for those, isolation is important. So we're removing any extraneous sensory inputs that might influence the way that, that people perceive and describe the coffee, and that's what they use the red light for, so that even, even visual attributes of the coffee don't affect the sensory analysis. Okay, so about two years ago, we started with a little warm-up exercise. We knew that we wanted to sort of get our methods worked out a little bit, so we started with a small little investigation into understanding this perennial question that coffee brewers ask each other all the time, which is, can you quantify the differences between using just a conical filter, which many of us are familiar with, or a flat bottom width uh, filter? Because both types are used all the time. People are passionate about um, their choice. So we wanted to see if we could use some methods to sort of understand the differences between these two, these two types. So the first thing that we did was to try to see if people could even perceive a difference at all. So what we set up with was a, a discrimination testing exercise. This is a basic tool of sensory science where you, oftentimes we use triangle tests for this, right? To see if we can, if people can even tell the difference between two different treatments. So we actually uh, designed a uh, two by two factorial design just um, to, which led to four treatments, trying to see if if we'd varied the grind size and we also varied the shape of the, the brewer, the shape of the filter basket, whether people could actually perceive a difference, okay? 45 participants all tasted these six triangles based on this, this two by two design and the coffee was brewed precisely the same. So what you wind up with here, when you have a, this kind of design, is you wind up with six pairs, right? You've got a uh, flat bottom, basket on, uh, on a grind setting on four and on Malcona grinder, and same, same brew basket, but with a different grind size. And then conical grind four, conical grind three. And then you compare each with each other all the way across. So that's how you wind up with these six pairs to see if we could tell the difference. And here's what we learned, is that at the end of the, at the when, once we crunched all this data, what we saw was that the tasters could reliably and consistently tell between the flat bottom brew, the flat bottom brews and the conical brews, but were consistently not able to tell the difference between the changes in grind size. Okay, so from from that we could interpret that actually the basket shape was making a, a difference in how people. So that was great. So we're able to say, okay, a basket shape is making a difference here. Now let's take it to the next level. So here are some plotting of, of total dissolved solids with all the different grind sizes and, and basket shapes. And you can see that the, the basket shape makes a big difference in terms of what the, what the TDS is. Okay, this is varying nothing. Same amount of coffee, same temperature of water. Everything's the same. Just the basket shape really dramatically varies the amount of TDS in the, in the resulting beverage, which... so. 
intuitively that should lead to uh, different flavor profiles. So we wanted to explore that a little bit. Okay, so next we're gonna do some, uh, some sensory analysis of these things. Okay, so now we've established that people can tell the difference. We wanna see exactly what those differences are. So for that, we worked with uh, Molly Spencer. She was the, the PhD candidate that helped us develop the flavor wheel in the first place. And she helped us design our sensory evaluation using a technique called descriptive analysis. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with uh, descriptive analysis and or maybe do cupping exercises, um, descriptive analysis is a, is a much different thing. Descriptive analysis is about describing what exists in the coffee without making any judgment about its quality. Okay, so it's only about describing attributes. And in fact, descriptive, unlike all of us who are coffee people, descriptive people that are engaged in descriptive analysis panels are trained to remove their, any of their, their opinions about quality from the work and just be able to document what exists in the coffee. Does it taste like flowers? Yes or no? and how intense is that floral taste? Does it taste like rubber, yes or no, and how intense is that, okay? They're not making a judgment about floral good or bad, rubber good or bad, just documenting the process. And this is a lot more rigorous and a lot more, it gives uh, better statistical data than um, say a cupping form data is, so it's very useful. So here's another experimental design, this time preserving the different basket shapes and also the, the, uh, the grind settings, but now adding two different roast levels. So now instead of a two by two factorial design, we have a two by two by two um, factorial design, including basket geometry plus grind plus coffee roasts, okay? So here is the, they tasted all those coffees using these, these descriptors from the flavor wheel, okay? Evaluating each of those, and here's a list of the references that they used. So we used a panel of 12 judges with three replications of each coffee, those 26 attributes that you just saw, and we measured everything, the uh, TDS and temperature and everything. And out of the 22 things that we measured, 18 were significant. So that means they were able to consistently identify 18 attributes in these coffees. And so here, when you chart them, this is called a a PCA, principal component analysis, and it shows you, it, its job is to illustrate complicated statistics and help you visualize them. And what you can see here is, in this group here is the cone, the light roast cone, and here's the light roast flat, okay? So you can just see by these groupings that the two cone filters, even whether they were ground differently, are more similar to each other than the differences in grind. And that's what we saw in the first experiment as well. So, and here's the dark roast over here. Again, the cone filter group together and the flat uh, fit together. At the same time, now here is an, another PCA chart showing the attributes, okay? So you can see up here are sour, citrus, and berry, whereas down here are grapefruit, sweet, and floral. Bitterness is up here, etc. So these are all plotted on there. Now, by overlaying these two things, it illustrates how we can associate certain flavors, for example, citrus, we associate with the cone filter on the light roasts, whereas grapefruit, sweetness, and floral, 
were associated with the uh, flat bottom. Okay, so here's another here's another illustration of the same thing. Here's the group of of attributes that were associated with the conical filter, and here's the ones that were associated with the flat bottom filter at a light roast, and here are the ones that are associated with a flat bottom filter on the dark roast, and the ones that are associated with a flat bottom filter, a conical filter on the, on the dark roast. So what this says from a practical perspective is if you're just by, if you're a barista, just by changing the geometry of your basket, you might be able to emphasize certain flavors over other flavors, okay? So by the way, I'll, I'll mention later We've, uh, we've published an article about that in, in 25 Magazine if you want some more detail. And there's Journal of Food Science. There'll be a publication within the next few weeks, a scientific publication about, about this. But remember, that was only a warm-up exercise. Our real goal was to try to explore some of those same concepts in the context of the brewing control chart. So the next thing we wanted to do was try to understand, okay, we understood some of the flavor attributes and how they related to flat bottom and conical brewers. Now we want to understand some of these flavor attributes and how they relate to the uh, brewing control chart. So here's another version of the brewing control chart. And what we wanted to do was brew coffee in each of these nine parts of the brewing control chart, right? So if we could consistently brew coffees in each of these areas and then submit them to the same sort of analysis that we just did, we might be able to understand some of those flavor attributes that were, that were described sort of vaguely on the brewing control chart. Okay, so here's our goal. We've got, we've got these, these multiple levels of dissolved solids and then these multiple levels of extraction and that leads us to nine different brews. Uh, here's a coffee that we used. I just, is Jen Apodaca here? She helped us source this coffee. Juliet Hahn from Blue Bottle helped roast it. And it was a Honduran coffee that we used for this experiment. And we did, we did multiple different roasts as well. And I'll mention more about that later. So because we used three different roasts, that, those nine different attributes turned into multiple different at attributes. So it got... Um, kind of complex, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So we wound up with 27 different brews from the same coffee, just roasting it differently and brewing it differently. Okay, so the next challenge for us was how do we, how do we consistently and systematically dial coffees into all of these different areas of the brewing control chart? And to do that, we used uh, a method called duty cycle changing. So some of, some of us call this pulse brewing. On certain brewers, you can change the duration of the water pulse. And indeed, that was true for this. Uh, this is a Curtis brewer that has, has the ability to program when the water is on and when the water's off. And through experimentation, we learn that just by changing the duration of the pulse, okay? So this is a 16.7% pulse, right? That means for, let's say, 100 units, let's just say it's not 100 seconds, but it's 100 units. If it's on, the pulse is on for 16.7% of that, and then it's turned off for the, the remainder, then it turns on for 16.7%, et cetera. Now, just by doing that, we could, we could um, consistently dial in coffees at different, 
at different places along the brew chart, okay? So this is a given recipe, right? This is, I think, this is 55 grams a liter. And um, just by changing the duty cycle, here's the 16.7, or no, this is the 100% duty cycle, here's the 16.7%, and then we can uh, get it extracted anywhere along that um, that we wanted. So um, by decreasing the duty cycle, we increase extraction and increase um, the strength. So that made it possible for us to dial in coffee to each different part of the brewing control chart. Does that make sense? Um, and this wound up to be pretty neat. So, um, so uh, you'll see in a minute how we were able to dial all of these in. Um, and then we did our same descriptive analysis exercise that I described earlier, right? So on all of these different coffees, we had our descriptive panel tasting them and describing them and seeing if, if uh, uh, what attributes that were there. Um, again, 32 flavor, aroma, and taste attributes. They used the flavor wheel. Um, uh, it's all blind, etc. cetera. Um, so here are the attributes. If you're curious, but you can't read that anyway, so I'll move on. Um, and they're also, by the way, not only evaluating the presence or absence of these attributes, but the intensity of these attributes. And that'll come into play in, an, in a minute, and I'll show you when, how. So here we have the different, um, the different brews. These are each, each of these um, symbols represents one brew. And you can see how good they got at sort of dialing them in to each of these, uh, these areas of the brewing control chart. So we were able to really consistently nail these coffees within these areas so that we could understand how they differed from one another. Um, wound up being 243 total brews with all the replicants. So lots of, lots of uh, brewing work that they were able to do and lots of work for the judges as well. Um, <clears throat> here are the, here's some of the details um, showing the, uh, the, the, what the duty cycle that was used, how much coffee, the brew ratio, et cetera, et cetera, to get it into all of these different quadrants. Here's the data, blah, blah, blah. So. What you wind up with when you do this is you wind up with three dimensions, right? So the brewing control chart is normally two dimensions. It's got um, strength on one side measured in TDS and extraction percentage on the other dimension. But once we, and once we, um, once we put in the attribute, the intensity of the attribute, right? So how sour it is or how sweet it is or how floral it is, that creates a third dimension. So by plotting these on, on, um, on third, on, in three dimensions, right, you wind up with something that begins to approach, that, that has a three-dimensional shape. Um, now, if you look at that three-dimensional shape from another um, angle, say you look at it from the top rather than from the side, you get something that's like this. So here is, here is what, um, the, this sort of response surface methodology shows you when you're talking about sourness. So sourness is, is something that exists in, in coffee, right? At a light roast, we associate it with light roast. So you can see here, this is a representation of the brewing control chart from 16% extraction to 24% extraction um, with 20% in the middle. Here is 1% um, uh, 1% uh, total dissolved solids to 1.5% total dissolved solids. 
And you can see how sourness right, increases over here and decreases over here. So what that means is that when coffee is relatively weak, but um, re relatively weak but highly extracted, it's less sour than when it is extremely uh, stronger and less extracted. Does that make sense? So, um, and that's at a light roast. It's broadly the same at a medium roast. And then at a dark roast, it changes slightly, but still the sourness is more pronounced at this part of the brewing control chart than at this one. So this gives us some insight into those flavor words on the brewing control chart, right? So that means that the sourness, acidity, is more pronounced at the upper left, si upper left part of the brewing control chart than it is on the lower right. Now, they were able to, um, so basically for sourness, it increases with TDS, <coughs> it decreases with darkness of roast, which is probably intuitive to most of you. And, uh, and there's this interesting kind of feature here in the, in the middle with the, with the dark roast. Now, conversely, here's sweetness, okay? So here's, the, here's what it looked like for, for sourness. Sweetness looks very different. You see that, that, uh, that the sweetness increases, right, as it is less, is, is weaker. Is in the lower TDS ranges, sweetness is much more perceptible at light roasts. Now, this shifts a little bit as the roast gets darker, um, and the, the, the sweetness is not just associated with low TDS, but also with lower extraction percentages as well. Here's bitterness. Bitterness shows a different behavior still, right? So bitterness is highest at this upper right part of the brewing control chart with high TDS and high percentages of extraction on light roasts. And then, of course, the bitterness gets even more pronounced on dark roasts. Here is very similar sort of response for this burnt wood ash um, flavor characteristic. Again, more pronounced in the dark roasts and more pronounced at high extractions and high strength. Um, here is flavor persistence, what we would mostly call aftertaste. And again, this is really interesting. We had the highest sort of um, on the light roast, the higher, highest flavor persi persistence, although not much flavor persistence. Um, and you had much more flavor persistence on the dark roasts. And again, at high extractions with high strength. So we're able to plot um, multiple um, things. Here's, here's a thickness, the sense of body, right? Um, corresponds roughly to the flavor persistence. Um, again, much more pronounced in dark roasts and again, much more associated with high strength and high percentages of extraction. So all in all, we were able to chart, plot multiple different um, uh, uh, of these sort of response surfaces, which enable us to understand exactly what the flavor, what each of these flavors does in terms of the brewing control chart. <coughs> this is all preliminary. What you're seeing here is the, the first couple of rounds of data. We've done four more rounds of, of, uh, of this experiment after this, and we're able to get a lot of data, which we'll be, we'll be able to layer over the brewing control chart so that we can understand exactly what flavors happen in what place of the, of the brewing control chart. Um, 
So here's a little bit way that you can, as a coffee person, you can, you can experiment with this yourself. So here's your, your brewing control chart. Um, and you can just, to simplify it, just divide your, um, your brewing control chart into four different quadrants. Um, and your goal is just to d do a, uh, a roast, uh, uh, a brew with low total dissolved solids and low percentage of extraction, high um, uh, solids and low extraction, high TDS and high percentage of extraction, and low, low TDS. And you can do that by using two different brew ratios, right? To brew it stronger um, down here and uh, higher up here. And then you can use um, different speeds of pouring, right? If you pour it really fast, you'll get a low percentage of extraction. If you pour it slowly, you'll get a slow percentage of extraction. Don't change anything else. Um, and you should be able to see some of the same attributes that we just described. You'll be able to explore some of these flavor differences for yourself. So this is all in process, by the way. We haven't published any of this stuff yet. It's all preliminary. Um, and uh, we plan on publishing this over the summer and into the fall of next year. So you'll start seeing articles going into some of the more details and publishing some of those, uh, those, uh, those surface response methodology things. This isn't, that was all um, descriptive analysis, right? Um, working on the descriptive attributes of the coffee. But there's another important thing too, which is what do people actually like? And for that, we turned to consumer testing, right? So we, we did, we repeated this whole exercise, but instead of having it go to descriptive judges who are describing what they taste with an impartiality, right? That's not what consumers do at all. Consumers don't do the descriptive part very well, but they're really good at telling us what they like. So we did um, a month's work of, of consumer research. This is the, um, what's called the sensory theater at UC Davis, and it's designed for doing consumer testing like this. Each of these, in each of these little areas is a consumer, and they're being presented, each of these coffees, right, brewed all these different ways in different parts of the brewing control chart, brewed at different roasts, different temperatures, et cetera. And, um, and so, because what we want to get a glimpse into is not only what the flavor attributes are, but what the consumers are actually um, uh, responding to in a, what, what's called a hedonic sense, what they, what they like. Um, and so we got a huge, gathered a huge amount of data doing this. We just finished the last panel um, a week and a half ago. So um, I'm just teasing you with this data. I don't have anything to share with you right now, but uh, that data will be coming out soon. But preliminarily, we're, we're seeing really interesting and consistent data um, from the consumers on, on what, what parts of the brewing control chart they like and also what sort of attributes that they associate with it. So that work is ongoing. The last thing I want to tell you about is work that's just starting. Um, this is um, a project called the International Multilocation Variety Trial. Um, and it comes from World Coffee Research. Uh, a, five years ago, um, at our RICO Symposium, we announced a project that was designed to plant a number of different coffee varieties 
in different farms, the exact same coffee varieties, and plant them in different farms throughout the world. Okay? So this is where you get the multi-location idea, right? Many different locations, same varieties, it planted in many different locations around the world. Um, and this is called the uh, International Multi-Location Variety Trial. Here are the, um, the varieties that were, that were planted. They selected 31 top varieties um, to plant in these farms um, to try to get a sense of what varieties actually work um, in different environments. So as I say, they were planted. They were all genetically identical, by the way, clones of each other. Um, so they're perfect genetic clones that are just planted. So the only thing that's, the genetics are the same with these varieties, but the, the, uh, the environment is different. So here are the 23 different countries um, uh, and the different sites where all these farms are located. So broadly, very, very different environments, same genetics. <coughs> then they're planted in a, in a very systematic way, right? So we under, so, and they're all planted in exactly the same way. Um, so we reduce the amount of variability. We're just looking at how the environment ha has an impact. And the environment includes ambient temperature, altitude, that sort of thing. But also, amount of water that it gets, um, the soil conditions, etc. Um, so these have been growing for the last five years. And of course, now they're coming into production. So we actually have coffee that we can, we can start to work with. Here's what um, these farms look like, um, uh, planted according to this, this, uh, this process here. Um, uh, this is Christophe Montagnon. He's the scientific director for World Coffee Research. And he's been uh, looking over, caretaking these, uh, these farms for the last five years. So what we, the purpose of this whole project is to <clears throat> try to identify which varieties work in which locations so that countries can make good decisions about what kind of varieties to plant. And then we want to see what kind of variation changes when we plant one variety in one place um, versus that same variety in another place. And particularly, how the genetics and the environment interact to create, to control some important uh, traits in coffee so that breeders can use that. So people generally, when we start to talk about genetics in, in, in coffee, they start to ask questions um, about what the effects are on cup quality. These are, these are questions we often ask each other. Um, and the truth is, we don't know very much about the impact of genetics on, we know that there is an impact of genetics and we have some anecdotal evidence about, about what particular um, genetics lead to what kind of flavors, but we don't have very much of that information. We don't know very much at all about the impacts of shade or soil type or fertilizer, temperature, climate zone. We have very little information about all this. And it begs the question, how are we supposed to help coffee farmers grow better coffee if we don't have good information for them? So our commitment is that we can know this and we're, and we're interested in, in, uh, in finding out. So we're launching a, a program uh, and we're calling it Unlocking Coffee's Flavor Code. And the point is to use that tool of the International Multilocation Variety Trials, right? All of these identical, genetically identical coffees planted in all these places 
and start to evaluate them using our sensory evaluation that I just described to you, those tools that we have, and also chemical analysis to understand how, this, um, how these varies. And that will help us give growers and countries and breeders in the industry um, better information about the varieties of coffee that exist and also the conditions that produce specific flavors. We're going to be using the same technique of sensory descriptive analysis that I just used. Okay, so we just used descriptive analysis to understand the dynamics of flavor in brewing um, geometry or in understanding the uh, control chart. Now we're going to apply that same methodology to understanding genetics, soil type, and environment. Um, we'll also be measuring the, uh, the chemistry of these coffees, okay? Using, using, uh, using measuring the volatile organic compounds to understand what the chemistry of these coffees is, and then we'll hopefully be able to start to correlate some of that chemistry with some specific flavors, with some specific varieties. So we've just launched this, um, this project. Uh, Hannah Neuschwander from World Coffee Research and I both gave lectures on this topic at RICO. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can go uh, to the RICO channel on YouTube now and see the lecture. It goes into a lot more detail than I just did. Um, we're raising funds for this project right now. So if anyone's interested in, in, uh, in helping with this research, we'd love to talk to you. Um, that flat bottom versus conical research <coughs> is in um, the, not the current issue of, uh, of 25 magazine, but in the most recent one, um, which is available there and also around it, our membership. You can pick up a copy of that magazine. And as I mentioned, the SCA Freshness Handbook is available at the store, and uh, Shahan will also be giving a lecture on it tomorrow. Um, so uh, that is it for my talk. And um, I just wanted to give you a taste of all this stuff. If you want to know more, I'm happy to talk to you more. That's me. That's how you can get in touch with me on Twitter and also um, my email at SCA. Um, happy to engage with uh, each of you about coffee science. And I appreciate you taking a little time today. Um, so thank you. That was one of the many lectures we hosted at World of Coffee Berlin last June. Remember to check out our show notes for relevant links, including a link to worldofcoffee.org for more information about this year's event. This has been an episode of the SCA's podcast 2019 World of Coffee Lecture Series, supported by listeners like you. Thank you for joining us.